All righty. Well, let's get to the text. I can hardly wait. I, uh, I'm not going to ask Matt Drago to sing We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder uh, at the end of this because uh, I suspect that if you know that song, by the time we're done with the text, you will find that, uh, though I'm sure a wonderful song, it has nothing to do with the Bible verse. So, um, uh, so let's just jump in. So if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis 28. We're going to look at verses 10 through 22, one of the most familiar, more familiar passages in Scripture. I mean, who doesn't know about Jacob's proverbial ladder? So um, so we're going to call this one The Dream, and um, as you're finding the text, please look at the person beside you on either side of you. If they don't happen to have their Bibles today, uh, read along uh, with us as you find it. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. While you're finding that, let me ask you a question. Are you like me sometimes? Can dreams be so real? You ever had one of those kind of dreams where it is so real? One of those where you're being chased by aliens or animals or enemies or monsters. I can still vaguely remember a dream I had in about fifth grade where I was being chased by a giant, like, three-story monster. And uh, ones that you're very, very afraid. And when you wake up, you always, oh, I'm so glad I wake up. I wake up right before I'm caught or right before I'm imprisoned, or right before I'm abducted, or right before I'm eaten, or always before I'm killed off in some sort of nasty, painful, and overwhelmingly scary way. Do you have those kind of dreams? Did you have the same childhood I did um, that still affects you into today? You startle awake. You know that feeling. It's like, and, or you fade in, which is actually scarier for me. You, you fade in awake slowly. But either way, startle or the fade... Reality and dreamland, for a few moments, kind of mix, don't they? They feel like they're same. And it takes you a minute or two to have this wonderful feeling that it was only a dream. It's so nice sometimes to wake up and just realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm in my bed. I'm not wherever that was, and I'm not about to get abducted and eaten. But then then it dawns on you. You look at your watch, you look at your clock, and it's 3.30 in the morning, and you realize that you still need to go back to sleep. Yes, see, I'm speaking to the right folks. And and you've got this, oh, no, am I going to re-enter the dream right where I led, you know, left off? Thankfully, I've never been eaten in a dream, so um, I've I've been safe thus far. Jacob, Jacob had a dream, and it produced terror and awe in him, but it was not at all like the dream I just described. It was a supernatural dream. It was a God dream. It was God actually meeting him in his dream. It was, at the same time, real because it was supernatural in its origin. God was revealing himself to Jacob. It was real, but some of the imagery that was used in the dream was surrealistic. So it was at both the same time, real and concrete, but it was a dream. It was surreal. And when he woke up, he was both terrified and filled with joy, all at the same time. Have you ever had joyful terror or terrorized joy? That's what Jacob experienced. Jacob, who was running for his life, and as we remember, hoping to find a wife along the way, Jacob, running for his life, was totally transformed by a single encounter with God. Genesis has not recorded, so God has yet to speak face-to-face to Jacob yet. This is going to be Jacob's first encounter with God. And Jacob is going to be totally transformed by a single encounter with God. Our shrewd shepherd is going to be transformed into a patriarch and a worshiper all in an instant. That same encounter will also transform this random and desolate place into a shrine. It's going to transform a pillow into a pillar and a dream into a holy and unforgettable event. And what we're going to discover for Jacob and for us when we encounter God, that when God reveals himself, we are truly and we are permanently changed. When we encounter God and he reveals himself to us, we are truly changed and we are permanently changed. So let's check out the scripture and see how God worked his plan in Jacob's life. Verse 10, I'm reading out of the ESV. 
Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning... Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel or Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Wow. Familiar, but fuzzy. Let's see what we get as we mine God's Word together. We're going to check out His escape, His dream, His awakening. And then we're going to look at Him. And again, I trust we're going to discover that when God reveals Himself, when we encounter God, we are truly and we are permanently changed. Let's pray before we jump in. (sighs) You are highly exalted, name above all names. That's what Jacob discovered. And I pray, Lord, that we can discover that today as well. And Lord, that in that discovery, the highly exalted one, we would realize that He, You, are our God, and You are here. And You dwell with us. And Your presence is real. It's not a dream. It's real. Just Your very presence transforms us. Lord, through your word, by your spirit, we pray, through the foolishness of preaching, that we would encounter you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin first by looking at his his escape, Jacob's escape in verses 10 and 11. And we're going to discover as we check these few verses out that God finds us when we're not looking for him. Now, that doesn't negate all the scriptures that talk about if you seek me, you will find. If you, if you submit to me, if you press into me, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. We got those scriptures, but I want to let you know there's, there's other things in the Bible that says at times when we are far from God, not just as sinners, but as saints who still sin, when God still finds us. When we're not looking for him, let's look at our text again quickly. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, it's going to take Jacob roughly a month to make a 550-mile journey. Isn't it amazing that mom told Jacob two weeks ago as we looked at this, hey, let's be gone for a few days. 550 miles. 
on foot or with a donkey or maybe dad gave him a camel. 550 mile journey to where Uncle Laban is going to live, where he does live. And at this point in our story, Jacob's only several days into his journey. So he's several days into a month-long journey. He's traveled now about 60 miles. And he just comes to a place. I, I don't know about you, but I want to try and get myself into the text, but I just can't imagine what must have been going on inside of Jacob's head. He's been traveling alone for several days. He's been suddenly thrust out of this lap of luxury of his father's home and is now totally alone as he's literally fleeing for his life because of his twin brother's anger. I imagine in these days of walking or riding, he's had many times to replay again and again every scene of his most recent escapade, his drama of deceit. His mom's plan, his striving and conniving, how ridiculous he must have looked in his brother's clothes with goat skins on his hands and neck, his repeated and shameful lies, his blasphemy of God's character as he made God out to be his partner in crime, his father's and his brother's loud cries of shock and horror, his brother's murderous plan and his mother's continued deceit. And then his father's change of heart and heartfelt blessing and prophetic pronouncement only to have to flee right when things were looking up, kind of. He had to go. Can you imagine in his head? Have you ever been like this? You just come to an end in yourself and you realize, oh, the stupidity of my sin. And I can't do anything about it. The stupidity of sinful striving. He knew what he had been promised by God, land, a wife, and children. He knew God would deliver. He knew of the promise. But he was sinning, and he was striving. And now he finds himself. The promise he had, he got. He knew God would have already given it to him, but he got in the way. He helped God out. And he finds himself alone in the middle of nowhere, miles from home, with many sad and lonely miles still ahead. Jacob's being judged. He's under God's discipline, and he knows it, and he's just plain worn out. Thoughts in his head? I don't know. What an idiot I am. What a loser. What a sinner. And he just stops to sleep in some random place along the way. He finds a rock, props his head up on it, and crashes. Just another now of several nights alone, in a hostile environment, without protection from the elements, without protection from the wild animals, or the inhabitants of the land that don't like him. People. But most importantly, under discipline and without much hope. Jacob is aware he has made a total mess of his life. Jacob has no reason in the world to think that God's going to show up tonight. He certainly doesn't deserve it. And the text shows that he certainly doesn't Expect it. But God finds us when we're not looking for him. And Jacob is about to get the shock of his life. But before we move on and see what happens next, let me ask you a couple quick questions. Do you really believe this statement about you? When you're saying, what an idiot, <laughs> what a sinner, what a loser, when you have made a mess of your life, and you don't expect, and you don't deserve, and you're well aware, do you ever expect God to show up? Now, if you're a Christian, remember, you were like that. You weren't looking for God. You were without hope and without God, Ephesians tells us. And yet, when you were not looking for God, while you were yet an enemy of God, God showed up. When you were shaking your fist in defiance against God, you wanted nothing to do with God. God sought you. Now we have room for that in our theology. How about when you're just a Christian acting like a pagan? You're having a madness moment again. And you know what you don't deserve. Do you believe that you have to earn your way into God showing up? Do you think that God will ever just arrest you in the middle of the night, in the middle of your sin? <laughs> And then, do you think that when you feel God has 
deserted you in life's trials. You haven't done anything wrong. Life is just happening. It's a fallen world. And you're sick and you're dying or your friends are sick or dying or the car just blows up or you get the unexpected bill. You get laid off or downsized or right-sized on your job. You know what's going to happen. You just don't want to see God. You just want to sit in front of the TV and veg. Aren't you glad that God still pursues even when we don't give a rip anymore? How much more then will he pursue? Will he draw near? If you draw near to him. Don't be afraid to draw near to God wherever you find yourself today. He wants to draw near to you. And just the fact that you're, if you're in the boat I just described, the fact that you're hearing this text this morning is evidence that God is drawing near to you. Let's keep going. To his dream. 28, 12 through 15. And we're going to learn that God's presence is our provision and our protection. God's presence is our provision and our protection. Let's look down at verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and your offspring, and in you and all your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Now, the first thing we've got to notice in the text is how the elements, the descriptions of this dream are laid out. They're laid out on purpose a certain way. A certain way. Even in the original language, just the way the, the words are structured, the sentences get shorter and shorter because they're actually taking us up a mountain, so to speak. Our attention first is focused on the setting. Heaven is touching earth. Second, we see the participants. The angels are heading down to do their duty, back and forth, to, to do their duty down, and then to go back up to report to God and get further assignments. And finally, and this is the focus of the entire passage, God Himself. Actually, in the Hebrew, Jacob continues with this crescendo in his dream as he's looking. It's like, heaven and earth! It's touching! And then... and. And angels are ascending and descending. And then the, the language, it points like a, an upraised arm and this loud exclamation. So he's like, he's dreaming, heaven and touch, touching earth. And angels are ascending and descending. <gasps> the Lord himself is here. And there's this crescendo. It's not about the ladder. It's not about the angels. It's about God drawing near to this rebel and encountering him in the middle of discipline. Yahweh, God himself, is right there with Jacob. Now, since this is a supernatural, surrealistic dream, some of the details, remember, they're not critical. And we're not given clear specifics because God is the point, not the dream. Like, for example, the ladder. What's the ladder? We're climbing Jacob's ladder. Is it a rung? Is it a metal ladder? Is it now a blue fiberglass ladder? What kind of a ladder is it? Well, it could have been a ladder, but probably what it might have been was more, think of a, a pyramid with stairs on it. Think of a, a stairway going from earth to heaven on a structure more like a pyramid. The ladder and the angels may have terminated on the ground beside Jacob, but remember, it's a dream. And actually, the language actually points that they were probably terminating on to Jacob and descending back and forth. God's covenant messengers, God's helpers, God's angels, all the descriptors in the Bible about the angels and what they do, God's servants down and up on Jacob. But the point is... 
God is in the text. God is beside Jacob. Again, it could be that God was standing at the top of the stairwell, at the top of the ladder, but it could equally read that Jacob just noticed all of that stuff. And then, and there's God. Wherever, however, whoever, God was near. This covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is near. God is right there with this unsuspecting, undeserving, shrewd shepherd. Jacob, the heel. Jacob, who's under discipline and judgment. But, but, like every other character thus far in Genesis, the chosen line, under discipline and judgment, but, as we'll see in the next passage, with a hope-filled promise of future provision and protection. God speaks. The first part of what he says reveals to Jacob. It actually, the first part of his revelation guarantees that Jacob will receive the blessing pronounced by Isaac. The blessing of Abraham. And the second part of the revelation guarantees. God goes on record. He promises Jacob protection as he sojourns to the land of his uncle Laban. And remember, he caused the problem. And God still says... I will protect you in the middle of your stupidity. And I will bring you back to the land of promise. In verses 13 and 14, check those out. Look at 13. God reveals himself as the same covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that he that blessed both his grandfather and his father. These promises, land, descendants, universal blessing, they are, get this, they are unconditionally made to Jacob. And they are unconditionally made to Jacob without reproach. And in verse 15, look at that we discover that yet again, God's presence, like we looked at weeks ago, is not only to bless, but His very presence protects as well. God guarantees Jacob's safety during his sojourn with Uncle Laban. God guarantees his safety when he returns to the land and he's going to meet his brother Esau, who is threatened to kill him. Even though Jacob has been faithless, God has been faithful. God is using Jacob's sin sinlessly. God is working his plan in spite of Jacob's sin and in spite of Jacob's unbelief. That is crazy mercy. Just crazy mercy. It is the most stubborn love I've ever seen. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced crazy mercy? Have you experienced God's stubborn love? Is that how you think of God? Jacob has been an absolute wretch. He's been deceitful. He was striving and deceiving to obtain God's blessing. And yet, God didn't give him what he deserved. He blasphemed God. God didn't give him what he deserved. God gave him mercy. Crazy mercy. God gave him grace. Stubborn love. And yet, in the middle of that, Jacob got away with nothing. Jacob, still, with crazy love, crazy mercy and stubborn love, Jacob was still a fugitive. And he's going to spend the next 20 years of his life outside of the promised land. But, hear this carefully, outside of the promised land, but still within the blessing of God. And that's this whole thing about grace and discipline. Outside of the promised land, but still in the blessing of God. When Paul talks about God's love in Romans, he says, shall we sin so grace can abound? And he says, God forbid, may it never be. If you've, been, if you've been set free from sin, why would you continue? But here's the good news. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You are always in the love, the crazy mercy and stubborn love of God. Even when God disciplines those he loves, 
He still continues to bless and watch over them. God reveals himself still in the middle of discipline. And Jacob is truly and permanently changed. Have you experienced this crazy mercy, this stubborn love? How do you think of God? Check this out, what this mercy and love does. Jacob's awakening, 16 through 22, we're going to find that God transforms wretches into worshipers. God still transforms wretches into worshipers. Let's look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How how awesome is this place? This is none other than, than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in his way, this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Wow. Jacob wakes up from the dream. He's overwhelmed. He wakes up and he's overwhelmed with the new knowledge that God is present with him, even in this place. God is present to provide God is present to protect during and in spite of Jacob's self-induced trials and Jacob's self-induced difficulty. Jacob wakes up overwhelmed with a reverential awe, a worshipful fear that the, the text says borders on dread, terror mixed with adoration, gratitude, wonder, spontaneous and joyful declaration. But it went beyond words. When God transforms, He starts with our head and heart, but then it moves to our hands. It went beyond words. It morphed into a spontaneous act of worship. At dawn, He sets up a stone that He was sleeping on as a monument, one that will arrest the eye and engage the mind, one that will serve to memorialize this event for the future because He's planning on coming back. He anoints the stone with oil. A kind of a... He's got a, a month still to go almost. He anoints it with oil, this gift sacrifice that demonstrates his devotion. And it serves, because when they anointed things with oil, it set things apart. And he's pouring his precious oil over the top of the stone to set it apart as something holy. A holy shrine unto God, if you will. And then he names this anonymous and random place. You notice in the text it just keeps saying, place, 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 place. It's just a place. until God shows up. And Jacob finds out, though, that God's everywhere. But God, he encountered God, and this place for him became a shrine, and he's got to rename it. This anonymous and random place is where God rescues and redeems Jacob. This anonymous and random place, Jacob then rescues and redeems from its past Canaanite associations, and he changes it from its Canaanite name to Bethel, the house of of God. And then Jacob doesn't stop there. He continues his worship. He makes a vow, a promise made to God. Now, vows in the Old Testament were not made to induce God to do something he was unwilling to do. It's not, I'll make a vow, and if then, and then I'll get you to it because of my really studly vow because I'm such a catch. Jacob wasn't a catch. He was a wretch. And God made him into a worshiper. And he immediately makes a promise, a spontaneous vow to God. Vows were made in the Old Testament to bind a worshiper to the performance of a sacred duty. And right here in the text is where scholars have a different opinion. They differ as to the extent of the transformation of Jacob's character and his motivations. 
Everyone, all, everybody agrees that Jacob has been truly and permanently changed by his encounter with God. But here's where they part company. Some would say that Jacob is still far, far from full transformation. One wrote, the he's still more scoundrel than saint. And that Jacob, in true Jacob fashion, demands that God prove himself further before he will fully respond to God. The ifs in the text are, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. The other, which I personally lean a little more towards, would disagree with that assessment of Jacob's character and what was motivating his vow. They would say that Jacob made his vow based on what God had already promised, what God had revealed he would do. Jacob took him at his word, and Jacob's language reflects a changed and a humble heart that's no longer striving and manipulating, but instead is prayerfully imploring God. He is, like we learned last week, audaciously throwing himself in prayer on the mercy of God. Jacob knows and Jacob acknowledges. The if is, oh Lord, if you will, if, if, if you'll bless me and if I return, I'll do the following. He's no longer manipulating and striving. He's a humbled man. He knows that if he returns, he's not saying, get me out of this. He knows he's going to go through it. But he knows God's going to go through it with him. And God's going to protect him. And he takes God in his word. And he says, okay, if you'll do this, and, and if I come back, I'll settle in the land. And I know you'll settle here with me. I'll come right back here to Bethel. And just like his forefather Abraham, Jacob also responds in spontaneous worship by pledging a tithe of all that God has promised to provide. Jacob's wealth would come right. <laughs> Jacob is like a staff and maybe, probably even not, a donkey. What little wealth he had would have been contained in being able to barter his oil. And, and that's nearly gone. And he's got three weeks of walking or riding ahead of him. He can't turn around. Brother Esau's ready to murder him. And here we go. What's Jacob got to offer? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless come to you. You know the hymn. <laughs> There's Jacob. There's me. There's me. Anything we offer back to God is what we've been given anyway, huh? Lord, I'll serve you. Duh. With the strength that he provides. Who gives you your next breath? Who gives you the desire? Who gives you the ability? Who gives you life? Who, who... Crazy mercy. Stubborn love. He's just not like us. I am so glad. Aren't you? Even when I make a hash and it's a mess and I've done it all to myself. He turns a wretch into a worshiper the first time when he saved me. And every week of my life. And if I'm honest, probably every day. Wow. I'm glad. So when God... <laughs> Listen. Are you feeling more like a wretch today? You made a mess. Let me invite you to run to him. He's already seeking you out. You're here and we're having a conversation. Just 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 run. If he did it for Jacob, he's no respecter of persons. You can encounter God today. Not the God you might expect, but one who will bless you and protect you and provide for you. And even if you're in the midst of some discipline you're not, you can't see a way out of, he will still be with you in there. And in the midst of the discipline of those he loves, he will still be there. You're never outside of his blessing. You're never outside of his care. You're never outside of his crazy mercy and his stubborn love. You can't outrun God. That's such good news. 
just fills me with hope. It doesn't make me want to sin. It makes me want to just stop being stupid and just surrender and just trust Him and just give up striving and put all my hope in the only place that matters, Jesus. Speaking of, Him, not Jacob. This text is not about Jacob. This text is about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're going to look in a minute in John 1, 5. We're going to discover that Bethlehem is much better than Bethel. Why? Because Jesus came and took on flesh. The word says tabernacled with us, dwelt with us. And Jesus took on flesh never, ever, ever to give it up again. In heaven, He's still the God-man. Are you looking for the place where God dwells? Well, it's not Bethlehem anymore either. But I, I wanted to come up with something that would, would contrast for us. Oh, are you, always, are you like me? I'm always looking for the special spot. When I, when I feel far from God, I want to just kind of run to some place where I met Him before. I want a relic, or I want a spot, or I want a place, and I want an emotion, or I want a song where I just feel God. Well, okay. But, you know, Bethels are fine. Run to the God man. Go to Bethlehem and see where God became man. Go to Calvary and see where he died for your sin. Look forward to heaven where he'll be there and there's no need for a temple. Jacob's ladder, poof, will be in his presence. Bethlehem's so much better than Bethel. So turn, if you would, to John 151. Just flip over. Quite a bit, I might add. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you're doing it on your electronic device, hit chapter 2 and just scroll up one verse. It's the last verse. Save your thumb a lot of work. Boy, life has changed, hasn't it? All right, but before you read it, let me give you a little background so it makes a little more sense because it's kind of a, hmm, scripture. At least it was for me. In order to get to one, we've got to fast forward to four. So think through chapter four in, in John, in, in a story most of us know. Remember Jesus at the well in Samaria with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well? Remember, she brought up a question. There was a lot of things that happened, but, but as she was kind of dodging Jesus' moral issues, as he, Jesus was seeing right through her as the Messiah who loved her and wanted to arrest her so he could save her. But in the middle of that, as she was playing dodgeball with Jesus, which is a dangerous thing to do because he always wins, but as she was playing dodgeball with Jesus, she brought up this obscure little thing about, well, where do we worship? And what is the purpose and what? And, and Jesus makes a statement about spirit and truth and all that, and we all know that. But I want to compartmentalize this just a skosh because it, it applies to where we're going to read in a minute. She brought up a question about the proper place to worship God. Do you remember that? Was it at the temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, was located on Mount Zion? Or was it at Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped because the Samaritans identified that mount with Bethel. The ladder, the gate, the door, the house, the stone, the patriarch, Jacob. Where should we worship? Where, Jake, where Jacob did? Or this thing that Herod has built? Where should we Worship, And we must realize that Samaria was located in Israel. Think north and south in the United States. We'll just go this side of the Rockies for this argument. Just think north and south. Samaria was located in Israel, the northern kingdom. If you think of the Mason-Dixon line with all the cultural differences that existed, particularly about a generation ago, that's what we're talking about. So Samaria would have been located kind of in Kentucky, 
just over the line. Samaria is located in Israel, the northern kingdom, and not in Judea, the southern kingdom. And there's regional identities at place when Jesus is talking right there. Same country, same people, but boy, are they different. You get that with the north and the south sometimes. All right, now let's go to John 1.51. Jesus is speaking to Nathanael, a Jew from the northern kingdom, Israel. Not the southern kingdom, Judea. He is an Israelite Jew, not a Judean Jew. So Nathanael has come to Jesus, and they're talking, and we won't get into all of that, but Jesus says, truly, truly, which is a Jewish way of saying, look, pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you, because the next statement I'm going to make is extremely important. So listen up, and here's the statement he makes to this Kentucky boy or in his case, probably a boy from Ohio because he wasn't a Samaritan. Here's what he says. And he said to Nathanael, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does this mean? The place where heaven and earth now truly touch, where God truly dwells, where God is fully present to provide and to protect, where we truly and fully find access to God and where we truly worship God. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, is standing in front of you. Jesus Christ. It's no longer on Jacob or at Bethel. It's not at the temple in Jerusalem either. The sacred space where God meets man. The space that's greater than the temple. That's greater than Jacob. That's greater than Bethel. Is standing in front of Nathaniel. And for us, we need not like Nathaniel. We need not look for sacred space. We need not look for a holy place. He's everywhere, but He's in us if we're believers. And He's with us. And most importantly, we are in Him. The place is a person. And He's in you, and you're in Him. And we together are members of His body. We need not look for sacred space or holy place. He's everywhere. He's in us, and we're in Him, and now, and forevermore. Now, now, and always. It'll never go back to that. Now, and forevermore. The person, the place, if you will, where we meet God, where we worship, where worship truly happens, where God is present to bless and to protect, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you been transformed by this knowledge? Another way to say it. Have you truly encountered God? Now, uh, uh, God's a legit word. I want to tighten it down to Jesus in front of Nathaniel. Have you truly encountered the place, the person, the only place, the only person that gives you access to God? The only place, the only person which you worship and adore. The only place, the only person which will be present to bless you and to protect you. The only place the only person that can free you from the wrath of God. Have you encountered Jesus? Or are places like this and events like today just a stone of memorial? A place where your mom and dad, no matter what your age, 
or where culturally it's acceptable. The thing you do, the place that makes you feel good, the religious thing to do. And my phone is doing crazy things. The place. Is this sacred space? No, it's a hotel. Do you come here to find God? Or have you encountered God? And have you encountered God in a way like Jacob has? Where that encounter has transformed you. That encounter has turned you from a wretch to a worshiper. Are you still playing around at Bethel? Are you still arguing over, is it Jerusalem or another mountain? Are you still waiting for God to do something? Are you still saying that if God will, then I will? Are you, are you trusting in something, somewhere, some stone, some house, some mountain, some temple, some purpose, some lifestyle, some checklist, some rule book instead of Christ? Let me encourage you. If you're asking that question, if you're doing that, you, you know you are. <laughs> if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would, I would implore you, I'd ask you today, be aware Okay, I'm going to speak to your conscience instead of to your head. Because your head's going to argue. But that's okay. God's after your conscience. He's after your heart. He's going to use your head to get to your heart. But are you aware of His offer to be present in you and to dwell with you? Will you respond to this offer? Will you place your trust in Christ? Will you surrender your heart and your will to Him and stop arguing and pushing back? Will you stop trusting in coming here and stop trusting in the faith of your parents and stop trusting in your ability to keep rules or regulations or to argue about theological nuance points about does God save you but you have to and what about how does Calvinism do this and what about this and how about this little thing? Will you just please repent of your sins and look to what Christ has done for you on the cross as He hung there to pay the price and to be punished for your sins, will you please, please consider? Will you believe that He's resurrected from the dead, which fully vindicated His claim to be God and man? Will you please consider and acknowledge that He's ascended into heaven and He rules over all of your affairs and one day He will come again to judge all who are living and all who have died? And will you please today turn to Him the God you've heard about some of you week after week after week year after year after year will you turn to Him and know Him and submit to Him as your Lord He is beckoning you through the foolishness of my preaching to come to Him and if you will, like he did Jacob, he will transform you from the inside out and you will never be the same again. Please come to Christ. Please repent of your sin. Escape the wrath of God. And if you are a disciple of Christ, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, <laughs> let me ask you a question before we close. Will you remember? For you, it's something you don't have to do. It's something you have to remember. Will you remember that He's present right here and right now? Do you remember that He's present right here and right now to remind you and to assure you of His provision? 
and of his protection. Will you today put fresh faith in him again? Will you, if you find yourself where Jacob was, just a mess? And it's your fault. And there's no way out. Or if you find yourself a victim of a fallen world, and there's no way out, it doesn't seem to be your fault. Where is God? I thought he was here to bless. I thought he was going to protect me. Will you you please have fresh faith in Him and remember all He's done for you in Christ and all He's promised to do for you in the future. And don't be defined by your current season. And please don't define God by your current season. As a matter of fact, run into the season and see God is there with you and will bring you back Because even if you feel out of the land of promise, you're still within His covenant blessing. Will will you allow Him to transform you again and today? Will you turn to Him and seek after Him and have an audacious faith filled with an audacious prayer? Will you become a worshiper? Will you look past your circumstance, even if it's discipline? And just respond. He will draw near to you if you will draw near to Him. And He's already doing that by seeking you out through this message today. Will you respond to Him with spontaneous words and deeds of worship? Listen, this text is simple. It's about God. It's about God finding us when we don't want Him. It's about God finding us when we don't think He's anywhere to be found. It's about God finding us when we're at our wit's end. It's a message of comfort and hope. It reminds us, because He's no respecter of persons, that He'll still bless us and He will keep us. He will guard us. He will protect us. And God wants to remind you today He wants to comfort you in your affliction. He wants to give you fresh hope for change. He wants to let you know that if He can do it for Jacob, He can and will do it for you. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. What He began in you, He will bring to completion. And on that day, when you face Christ Jesus, and you're a follower of Him, there will be, therefore, because of that, no condemnation. And you will enter into the inheritance that's being kept for you. He's keeping an inheritance. He'll keep you now. Let's pray.